This call is being recorded. Hello and welcome to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. Today, we have part two of a special event concerning our decision to begin the writing and publishing of a series of the light embracing books, spinoffs that will augment my published book, Embracing the Abyss. Today, we are continuing the reading of our first light embracing book. It is titled, Embracing Your Abyss, Get a Grip on Your Life. I'm pleased to announce again our first co-author of our initial light embracing book, Mr. Roland Hallmark, also known as Coach, who authored the book, Get a Grip, before his passing. Today we're going to begin part two, and... The, let's, let's summarize a little bit before we go into that. For part, part one, we discussed, was read, uh, get a grip on why, get a grip on self-discipline, get a grip on the stone chisel, and get a grip on making a difference. For part two today, we will... First, read, get a grip on time. Get a grip on time. Time and how we use it is a fascinating subject. It is a fixed asset that cannot be replenished. When it's gone, it's gone, never to return. We rarely stop to consider the fact that we only have 24 hours or 1,440 minutes to use each day of our life. We can choose to invest that time for a later but greater return, spend it for an immediate return, or waste it for a zero return. These choices are critical to how productive we are, to how we feel about ourselves and how others feel about us. Deciding how to invest or spend our time requires self-discipline, a sense of what's important and a plan of action. Deciding how to waste time requires no intelligence to speak of, no self-discipline, no vision, and no goals. The term couch potato is very descriptive of a person wasting time. Managing our time productively calls for, at least, a minimum system of control tools and strategies. There are two basic control tools, which, although obvious, are all too often 
used ineffectively, if at all. These are the clock and the calendar. The use of the clock as a control tool can be useless unless the user has a sense of time. This is an inside the head knowledge of generally what time of day it is, how much time has passed during any given period and how much time it will take to accomplish any given task. When this sense or skill exists, exists, the clock becomes a reference tool for controlling and managing time. When it doesn't exist, time control and management are next to impossible. If you find yourself in trouble in this particular area, you would be well served to make every effort possible to correct this weakness. I suggest the self-discipline to focus, concentrate, and practice as a good place to start. The second basic control tool that accompanies the clock is the calendar. This tool is critical to the job of assigning segments of time to events, events, schedules, appointments, and tasks. Again, self-discipline is required to make this tool effective. Diligently recording upcoming appointments, events, and tasks on one master calendar and reviewing it daily will be an immense help in managing your time for the greatest return. Obviously, this calendar should have recording space for the pertinent information, time, the day, and the month. Time strategies include all efforts to accomplish more in minimum amounts of time. The two key strategies are organization and prioritizing. Organization puts structure to your management of time and the use of the master calendar is a good example. Also, having your physical surroundings organized in such a manner that only a minimum amount of time is used to operate within that area is another example worth noting. It should go without saying that a disorganized office, workspace, or home is fertile ground for the mismanagement of your time. Prioritizing is a time management strategy that requires intelligent judgment and excellent analytical skills. This is the strategy that allows you to get the greatest return from the time spent or invested. It is here that you make choices and decisions on what is most important and least important. Your time becomes like cubes that can be arranged and rearranged in different stacks or sequences. With each cube having a certain value based upon your analysis or decision. When you choose to move these cubes into a certain sequence of order, you are prioritizing your time and managing it for the greatest return. There are other time strategies, but organization and prioritizing are by far the most important. Time usage not only pays or doesn't pay dividends, it can also reflect how you feel about yourself and how others feel about you. If you habitually squander and waste your time, it often means you don't value yourself highly enough. If you waste other people's time by missing or being late to appointments or events, 
you're sending a clear signal that you don't value or respect them. Often this causes them to reverse this lack of respect toward you. In such cases as these, your management, your mismanagement of time has resulted in a severe loss for everyone concerned. Time and its usage are critical to success and well-being. There is a fixed amount of time and it is up to you to make the correct choices as how best to use it. Chapter six, get a grip on people. Relationships with people will, without doubt, be the most important and complex encounters of your life. It is for this reason that you must develop your people skills to an extraordinary level by understanding completely how relationships function between people of differing mental, emotional, physical, and cultural abilities and environments. A comprehensive discussion of this subject is too broad and involved for my purposes here. What I'd like to offer you are the three factors I found most beneficial to building my people skills and the understanding of how interaction with people works. Study. What, how, and why people do things they do makes them who they are. Only through intensive study and close observation can you hope to try to understand for what, how, and why of people. Without this understanding, it will become increasingly difficult to function productively with individuals and groups. I found the answering of that, of what, how and why to be challenging, interesting and enjoyable. I've often referred to this study of people as a game of mental, emotional and social gymnastics with the objective being to stick the landing with answers. Studying people, both those with whom you're closely associated and those whom you're not can ultimately give you a significant advantage when it comes to communicating and interacting effectively. With what you learn from this study, you will begin to see, hear, and feel the emotions, emotions and thoughts that cause people to act and react the way they do. You will come to recognize the subtle signs indicating happiness or sorrow, stress or relaxation, honesty or dishonesty, and good or bad intentions, just to name a few. Above all, you will become skilled at putting a person's emotional and mental position together with their physical position to better understand how you should deal with them in any given situation. If you expect a person to act or react in a certain way after studying them, the odds are they will do as expected. 
this gives you a tremendous edge in producing something positive from the interaction. A key thought about studying people is to include yourself in the study, knowing the answers to what, how, and why you do what you do will greatly enhance your chances of dealing successfully with another person. Communication. If we could agree that communication can only occur when there is both a sender and a receiver, we can also agree that each has a degree of responsibility for making that communication to work. If that responsibility is assigned on a 50-50 basis, we could be in real danger of creating miscommunication or worse yet, no communication at all. By using the 50-50 responsibility factor, we are making the assumption that communication passing between the sender and receiver was delivered perfectly and understood perfectly. This assumption leaves no room for error and creates the possibility for a gray area mentioned in the making of a difference section. To protect against any such flawed communication, the assignment of responsibility could be increased to 60% for the sender and 60% for the receiver. This 20% overlap would give us a better chance at eliminating any gray area and producing more effective communication. This responsibility approach to communication makes listening a critical people skill. Unless we listen intently for content, for content, meaning and understanding, we cannot meet our 60% responsibility and assure ourselves that we have all the information we need to respond accurately and intelligently. Listening seems to have become a lost art in our fast-paced world. People seem more intent on sending back a response than on understanding the message they are receiving. If you ever catch yourself responding before the speaker has completed making his point or before you have understood that point, you are guilty of not listening, failing in your 60% responsibility and damaging the communication process. When effective communication is lost, time is wasted. Mis mistakes are made and opportunities are not taken advantage of. You may be able to hear a bell ring when you're not listening, but you will not hear the benefits of a good idea. Listening for information upon which analysis and a later choice can be based is upon is often the only difference between success and failure. While listening is essential, it serves little purpose unless you can respond in a way that assures understanding by the person or persons you're communicating with. Effective expression, both verbal and written, is the other 60% responsibility that must be met by the sender. You would do well to get all the education and training you can get in the areas of speaking and writing. The application of what you learn and acquire independently is on parade. Every day of your life and your success or failure is a direct result of this ability to be understood. Two key principles to keep in mind. When making your point verbally or in writing are audience and construction. 
you must have as much knowledge as possible about the audience that is receiving your communication. With this knowledge, you can avoid going over their heads or showing them disrespect by talking down to them. Your communication should be consistent with their ability to process your message into usable information. The other key principle is that of construction. This is the framework of, of vehicle or vehicle that carries your message. The most common mistake in this area is overblown points hidden inside equally overblown descriptive terms. The most effective construction is one that is clear, concise, and short. You may find me guilty of making this mistake in parts of get a grip. Regardless, I know from time to time, you will hear the reference about getting to the point, and that is an indication that construction is confusing. The point I'm attempting to make is that your ultimate success depends upon your ability to listen intelligently and respond intelligently. Awareness. Emotion, passion, intensity, stress, and competitiveness are just a few of the byproducts of human reaction, interaction that can distract you from the reality of any situation. This distraction can produce a loss of focus that leaves you vulnerable to all sorts of negative problems and could cause you to make a bad choice or miss an opportunity to make a productive contribution. Awareness and its continuing development is your insurance against this happening to you on a consistent basis. There appear to be two critical skills that support the benefits of awareness. One is the ability to focus intently on any given situation by using your five senses of sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell to produce usable information. The second is what many refer to as your sixth sense, that being intuition. You should recognize this as your inner voice or feeling that sends you messages or signals about the situation you are in or about to be in. I can't explain it scientifically, nor can I tell you how it works or where it comes from. I can tell you that it does exist and that it has helped me in both negative and positive situations. Learn to use all six of your senses to produce the right choices when interacting with people. Chapter seven. Get a grip on your environment. Setting the world aside, you basically live in three environments, family, social, and professional. The three overlap and flow together because you are the common element that functions in all three. However, I would like to address each separately because of their unique importance as individual environments. Family. The most intimate and emotional of the three environments is that of the family. As you grow older, your family unit will more than likely increase to include 
a spouse, and children. Your family unit now and in the future is the most valuable asset you will ever have. Unfortunately, too many of us don't seem to appreciate this asset until life and our own mistakes have knocked us around for a while. In which case our appreciation then begins to develop as we realize the unconditional love and support from our family seems to be always be there, regardless of how foolish we behave and how bad our choices turn out. Some say this lack of appreciation is just part of growing up. I don't buy that thinking at all. You can and should mature with what appreciation, not because of the lack of it. The family environment, as it should be, can best be illustrated by a soaring eagle. The eagle doesn't soar in the sky without the lift provided by the wind passing beneath its wings. Without that lift, it would fall to the ground without achieving its purpose in life. This example as, has a message for both you and the family. The lift from the family must be there if you're to have an opportunity to achieve your full potential in life. If they provide it, you must use it, protect it, and appreciate it, and thank God for it. Above all, don't forget that as a family member yourself, you have the responsibility to lift as well as the opportunity to soar. It's the mutual sharing of love, trust, respect, and support that combine to form the glue that binds individuals into a family with a value that is priceless. Social. The social environment is best in identified by the good and bad experiences we have from associations within our peer group. Inside that group are people we love, like, dislike, and don't know based upon the degree of association. I won't bore you with a lecture on the total social environment. I want to concentrate solely on that social aspect we refer to as our friends. Friends are, without a doubt, absolute treasures. Some often become extended family, while others enrich our lives in so many ways we would be lost without them. Having said that, I also want to alert you because of the perspective, protective nature of get a grip to the existence of users. The user masquerades as a friend. They are very believable and skillful at using their relationships with people to gain an advantage strictly from their own selfish purposes. They don't value friendship as a treasure. They use it as a tool. When you find them out, it really hurts and can cause you to be overly concerned about the circle of friends with which you still associate. It's not the hurt you experience that I worry about as much as the suspicion, the suspicion that might be created by the experience. Please take my advice and try to see it for what it is, an experience that can illuminate the real value of true friends, not distract from it. The social environment in total would be more enjoyable, productive, and valuable if we all would practice the art of being a true friend, a friend that places your well-being and happiness right there besides theirs, who support without being asked 
and who defend when it is not popular nor politically correct to do so. A true friend is and will always be one of the great joys in life. To be, one doubles the intensity of that joy. Professional. The professional environment is highlighted with opportunity and laced with pitfalls. To be successful in the professional environment requires a multitude of skills and abilities far too numerous to go into here. I'll leave the obvious ones to your own experience. My purpose here is to address what I found to be the two most critical elements determining success or failure in the professional environment. One represents the opportunities and the other the pitfalls. You cannot celebrate the highs or winning nor learn from the lows of defeat unless you get into the competitive arena. It may be scary and uncomfortable, but it is the eye of the needle through which you must pass if you're to realize the potential within you and take advantage of the opportunities the professional environment offers. There will be many competitive arenas within your person, personal and professional life. Some will be more critical than others, but all will be important in your development and ultimate success. Don't shy from them and don't be afraid. Approach them with enthusiasm as an opportunity to celebrate your abilities and to continue, excuse me, to continue learning. A key thought about the competitive arena is that generally, whatever actually happens, there is a cur short curve lived, win or lose. It's what you become after the experience that becomes important and permanent. The competitive arena is exciting, rewarding, educational, and a great value vehicle for your creativity. Don't shortchange yourself by not experiencing to its fullness. Thank you listeners again for tuning in to Searching for Integrity. We'll have part three next week. So long and happy trails to all. <laughs>